When I talk to property investors, they often tell me using debt is a key advantage over other asset classes. In the stock market, using debt is often called gearing. The new BetaShares Wealth Builder Funds, ASX ticker symbols G200 and GHHF, offer moderate gearing across Australian and global shares for investors who are comfortable with the higher risks associated with gearing their investments. You can discover how they work by visiting betashares.com.au. Please don't forget that gearing magnifies gains and losses, so read the relevant PDS and TMD on the website and consider if the fund is right for you. BetaShares Capital Limited is the issuer. Is there a Spotify wrapped for investing? If you want to invest in shares or ETFs, our friends at Perla are more than one step ahead of the curve. On average, people who use Perla invest $1,750 every month. That's what we want to see, proper dollar cost averaging. With automated investing tools making your life simple, Perla investors have well and truly mastered the art of investing small bits lots of times. So if you're ready to start growing your net worth in 2024, follow the link in your Spotify or Apple podcast player right now to discover how you can get started today. Welcome to the Australian Finance Podcast. I'm Kate Campbell. And I'm Owen Rask. And we're here to give you the tools and knowledge to invest both your time and money better. If you're new, feel free to jump in with our Starter Pack series that aired in early 2022 or our Shares or ETF mini series. We've got plenty to share with you in today's episode, but if you want to catch us on socials, head to Rask Australia on Insta and Twitter. I'm also found at Kate Campbell AUS on Insta. And I'm Owen Rask AU on Insta. Just beware of the fake accounts. We'll never DM you about trading strategies or crypto. And if it sounds a bit weird, it's probably not us. And just one final heads up before we get into the show. This podcast contains general financial information only. Kate Campbell, welcome to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast. It is wonderful to be back, Owen. Always is. And we're recording remotely. And we're recording remotely with Gaurav Sodi. Gaurav, how are you going? Hi, Owen. Hi, Kate. It's nice to be back. Owen, I feel as though we're doing this every week now. It feels like a, a weekly chat. Yeah, it, it does seem that way and how lucky we are. This is the third Wednesday in a row. You and I have caught up remotely and this might be the last time before we catch up in a, in a little while. So. Sounds ominous. <laughs> yeah, it does sound ominous, yes. <laughs> but it's, a, no, it's always a delight to catch up and to talk companies, uh, to talk the art and I guess, science of value investing, what it means to find great companies and be a better investor. And that's kind of what we're talking about today is this whole idea of finding businesses, owning businesses, why they're so exciting and why they can be not even exciting, just it's the art of it is exciting. The process of it is exciting. And we're going to throw a few questions at you on in terms of how investors can get started, but also extend their knowledge. But I guess the first question is, I know you trained as an economist which is an interesting phrase, trained as an economist. I'm curious how you got your start and for listeners, how they can frame who you are and what you do today. Yeah, that's quite a deliberate phrase, trained as an economist, because I don't think economics is a practitioner as such. I think it's a way of thinking. I think it's a particularly useful way of thinking if you're curious about the world or if you want to understand the world. And Coincidentally, it's very useful if you want to be an investor as well, because I think what it does is if it, it focuses on pure rationality. It suits my personality really well because I've always been a little bit low on the EQ and um, <laughs> I've always been pretty stoic. So to find a discipline that rewarded that behavior 
and seemed to match my own personality, I thought was was really important. And that translated well into investing as well. The things that economics demands are a, a rational mind, a dispassionate um, nature, inquiry, curiosity, and just a little bit of quantitative skill. But most importantly, probably the wisdom to know when to apply numbers and when not to apply them, not just the, the brute force of, of math. And I don't think that's, that's very similar to investing. Mm. You spend most of your time researching and finding companies. And I should add that the Intelligent Investor is a sponsor of the RAS podcasts. And you can sign up to the Intelligent Investor via a link in your show notes. There's a free trial available to any of the RAS listeners. But also there are managed funds that trade as ETFs. So if you are interested in what Gaurav is talking about or anyone that the Intelligent Investor are talking about, you can access the portfolios in effect via the ASX on your brokerage account, which is a great thing too. So Kate, we've got a lot to talk about with Gaurav, a lot of value investing um, practices and principles and what that means. Where should we kick off? Well, I think Gaurav, many of our listeners are investing in support of what they do overall and investing isn't their day job. So I think it'd be really interesting to hear about what someone who lives and breathes investing as their job, as their hobby, what does that look like for you a day in the life? It is a hobby. You're right, Kate. I don't view what I do as work. I mean, I view it as a hobby. I I would be doing exactly the same thing. I think my day would look exactly the same whether I was working at II or not. I view it as as an application of curiosity. I think that's what investing is. It's applied curiosity about the world. Um, If you want to know about a company, what you need to do is not be a financial expert. You need to be a researcher. You're an investigator. You're a solver of problems. You're a solver of mysteries. Um, so what you need to do, the mindset I bring to it is I'm going to find as much about this thing as possible, this product as possible. You know, one of the things I looked into was, you know, there's a business called PWR. It's one of my favorite businesses. They make um, cooling systems for F1 cars. And I happen to be a bit of a car nut. So I knew a little bit about cooling systems. But when I was researching that company, it made it my mission to find out everything I could about the development cycle of cooling systems for F1 cars about the product cycle, about the investment cycle. And for three or four weeks there, I lived and breathed cooling systems and F1 systems. I did that for GWA when I looked at toilets. And I did that for caustic soda when I looked at um, alumina. You really want to hone in on a business and find out as much as possible about it. And then you would need to understand what drives value in a business. You know, investing isn't just a collection of knowledge. It's about filtering out what's important, what's not. You can only really determine that once you have an established set of facts. And so the, the first task is to really gather information, learn as much as possible about your subject matter. And then from there, you can focus in on what is important, what's not. And experience there is just invaluable. I think I used to spend a long time trying to figure out what was important. And I think as you get more experienced, you instinctively know what matters and what doesn't. There are so many different options these days, Gurav, to invest that potentially don't take up as much time. And I'm interested to know if that idea of applied curiosity is the reason why you decided to focus on active investing rather than just building an ETF portfolio and calling it a day. That's the way it started, I have to say. When I first started investing, it was there wasn't the ETFs and the index funds weren't as dominant as they are now. The choices weren't as vast. The costs weren't as low. It was an option, certainly, but not an obvious one the way I think it probably is today. 
But I certainly started because I was interested and I found investing was an application of my curiosity the same way that economics was. I think the difference was that we've had this discussion before, in fact, but I remember I'm sitting and reading a newspaper article about platinum in New Zealand and, and Kerr Nelson, the boss of platinum, had just listed that business so he was doing a bit of publicity for it. And he said, in a throwaway line, he said, platinum is a place for outsiders to work. And it just got me thinking. And um, I realized that most jobs are actually about rewarding a very specific kind of behavior. You know, you have to conform to a, a particular kind of behavior. You have to behave in a specific kind of way to get ahead in most jobs. But investing demands are completely different. It, it flips all those, all those incentives. You're actually rewarded for being the outcast. You're rewarded for being the oddball. If you had to have a differentiated view, you're rewarded for it, castized for it the way you are in most jobs. And I think that kind of incentive system struck with me and I was drawn to it. And that's why I moved from economics to investing. But I think every investor also has to grapple with the balance between humility and arrogance. And if you don't have an ounce of arrogance as an investor, I don't think you can invest successfully. And by arrogance, I mean you need to believe that you can generate better returns than the millions of people who you're competing with. Make no mistake, this is a competitive endeavor. The money you make from investing, the returns you generate, come from somebody else. So this is an intensely competitive process and you need to believe you can do better. And I just happen to have the arrogance to think that I can do better than most people. <laughs> you need to balance that with some humility, but it's got to be there. You've got to believe that you can do better than anyone, everyone else. If you don't believe that, then index funds is the way to go. Mm. Just take the ASX graph. There's 2,300, say, companies. Maybe if you include ETFs and other things, there's a lot of things you can invest in. Sure, some of them will be like very small speculative things. You probably know what we want. But like, how do you take that down to a list of companies that you and the team research? And in the past, you told me that there's like a set time frame as well for analysts, including yourself, to go away and research a company. I think this is fascinating to me because what you guys do is incredible, that process, but also the fact that all of you come together and you're also talented in your own right and you're all those outliers, but you come together and you share this process, which is really impressive. In the old days, it was probably more of a fixed timeline. We probably gave every analyst two weeks or so, two to three weeks to research a stock. And then they come back, share their findings. We'd write them up and move on to the next article. But I think as we've all gotten older and more experienced, we've given a lot more flexibility to how much time we allocate to a particular business. And that's because our knowledge base has just grown and broadened. I mean, if I'm going to look at an iron ore or a resources business, I can do that very quickly because I've looked at many of them. I've spent more than a decade covering mining stocks and I understand that industry really, really well. But if you're going to put me into an insurance company or a financial business, that's going to take me a long time and I'm going to need more time to dissect that. Can you talk through the idea? I think you call it the dragon's den. Is that what you call it? Can you talk through that? Yeah. So once an analyst has an idea or a stock he's looking at, goes away for a couple of weeks, then comes back. And if it's a buy idea, he needs to present that idea to the rest of the team. And the concept is that the rest of the team takes an adversarial approach to try and, and tear that idea apart. And this can be quite um, shattering for new analysts because it can get quite heavy. In the old days, it used to result in a lot more brutality than it does now. I think we've all learned to tone it down a bit. But when, certainly when I started, when there were really big minds in the room, you know, that we used to get savaged. I mean, um, Gareth 
Brown and Greg Hoffman can take down an idea with few words and with um, intense results. We don't do that so much anymore. We're probably a lot gentler now, but the idea is still to take an adversarial approach and try and poke holes, find what's wrong, and find the limits of your knowledge. Mm, which is such a rigorous way to go about it, and I think I think it's so important. So just, just to put one bow on this graph, so in that two to three week period, say it's not fixed, but like that in that period, the analyst would be expected to go beyond just looking at what's like in the financial statements. Oh yes. Yeah. So financial statements is easy. I mean, if you're a, any sort of um, experienced analyst, the financial statements are the easiest part. That's the easiest part of the story. The rigor and the difficulties, understanding where the value is added, where it's captured, the competitive dynamics, um, the industry dynamics and the evolution of those dynamics. It's all these qualitative forces that are much harder than the numbers. The numbers are really quite easy once you've done it a few times. I mean, we can rip through numbers very quickly. That also tells you something about where the value added for investing lies. It's not in numbers. The very fact that an experienced analyst can rip through numbers and a computer can rip through numbers instantly tells you that you're not going to find great investment ideas just by looking at numbers. You really need to find something that is misunderstood or mispriced or have superior insights to someone else. And you really only get that by, by diving deep. Owen mentioned that huge list of companies, and I'd be really interested to hear how you find other ideas, because I know you talked about applied curiosity, but do you ever find ideas just on a walk or by talking to people or how does that work? In fact, Kate, you'd be shocked how many ideas are found just by talking to people. I think when I first started, I used to do screens. I used to look for specific qualities I'm looking for in businesses. And I think that is fine if you're starting out. But the better way really is to try and get insights that other people cannot find. And a lot of that involves speaking with other people. I spend a lot of my day now, instead of trawling through numbers, I just meet with people and speak to them about what they're seeing, about what's happening. For example, I'm, um, I was on holiday in Katoomba recently, and we went to the Blue Mountains for a little getaway. And we stopped off at a brewery there. It's called Mountain Culture. I don't know if you guys have ever heard it. I thought it was the best beer I've ever had. And when I came back, I just, everywhere I looked, I saw Mountain Culture beer. I saw it in our local pub um, at the Green Gate. I saw it at my school, at, at where my, a pub near my, my kid's school. Not that I'm spending a lot of time at a pub near my kid's school, <laughs> but we happened to see it there as well. And then, you know, I'm, I'm going to contact the company. We're going to take a tour of this place. We're going to learn about this business. And in the process, we're going to learn about the brewing industry, the difficulties about local, what that local brewers face, some of the opportunities ahead. And after that, I'm going to probably look at some listed local brewery businesses. And that all came from a holiday drink in Katoomba. And that's just, that's probably six weeks of my time taken up now, planned out and going to be executed. It's going to be wonderful as well, because it's going to involve a lot of uh, pub visits, (laughs) which I'm not complaining about. But that's the way ideas come. One of the analysts, BWR, for example, something I've looked at for a while because I'm interested in F1, but one of the guys was watching that, that Drive to Survive documentary. And the team was initially very hesitant on PWR. I took it to the Dragon's Den twice, got knocked back twice. When one of the guys saw that documentary, understood the connection between supplier and racing car, the way each car and each track is unique but uniform, that changed the team's view. And that's why I think this job is not one you can do just nine to five or within a few hours. Everything you experience in your life, everywhere you go, everyone you talk to, everything you watch and hear 
These are all pieces of a puzzle you need to be constantly putting together all the time to generate investment ideas. So something that people do in investing is we come up with heuristics. And I like to think that over time, investors become basically pattern recognition kind of devices where we see things that maybe it's played out before and maybe this is slightly unique, but we can almost tell the story a little bit before it happens. And that is really like interesting to me and seeing people form as investors is really interesting too. But one thing that typically results when you're a beginner, Gaurav, is like people want to know like, well, what do you look for? Like, sure, you go and look at this craft beer, right? What are the types of things that you would be looking at? You mentioned something along the lines of like, maybe like the pain points or the challenges, but are there like common principles of business that you look for to come up with something that might be a good idea, if that makes sense? I guess everyone is looking for a great business with great management at a reasonable price. And it's important to know what that looks like. A great business is one that can generate a high return on capital. That's all it is. Um, It can be any kind of business that generates a high return on capital. Great management is management that um, acts like owners and allocates capital sensibly. And a great price is as low as possible. If you can combine those three things together, you've got it. But those three things never combine together, except in moments of panic and crisis. And um, I think those moments come around rarely, but it is amazing how much of your returns as an investor come from those brief moments of panic. The GFC is one where I was still green as an investor. I did not handle that well, did not make money into in it, panicked completely and acted poorly. But I learned from that. The team learned from that. When the COVID mess came, we absolutely nailed it. We upgraded every company we wanted to upgrade. I personally, I mortgaged my house again and put every dollar I could find, combed the house for a spare change. Every dollar I could find, I invested in the market at that point. And because these are the moments, these are the times. You, you go through every day, you know, you, you're looking for companies, you struggle and you're fighting others. It's a competitive endeavor. And then once in a decade, you get a chance and you've really got to take it when those opportunities come. But that's not every day. That's just, um, I think it's really important just to highlight that, that when those opportunities come, when the mass panic and the uh, herd behavior, when you see it, you've got to act at those times. That can set you up for life. You only need a handful of those periods to do really, really well. Every other day, I don't think it's about numbers. It's really about trying to um, find insights. And what I like to do really, I think a, a large part of what we do is try and compare stories, compare the story a business or the market is telling you about a stock um, and compare that to economic reality. And it's surprising how often that deviates. We see it all the time. I'm, I think my favorite example is probably with, um, well, there's there's two favorite examples, but uh, one is coal, which um, I think everyone now knows about. With the, the story with coal was it's going, it's a stranded fuel. No one's going to use it anymore. The government's going to outlaw it and it's not going to work. And that story was embedded in share prices. And coal companies were, were just incredibly cheap. And we bought them en masse and in aggressive high quantities, not because we thought the coal price was going to turn around, but because a specific story had been priced in as a certainty. And I just thought there was some uncertainty about that outcome. And I'm happy to admit we got lucky, but we took every opportunity uh, to play a mispricing in the market. And the similar thing happened with Fortescue a couple of years ago. Fortescue got down to three bucks 
And when we slapped a buy on it, it was about 350 or 380. And the story was that the, you know, Fortescue produces iron ore, obviously, but it's a low grade iron ore. So it has to accept a discount to the benchmark iron ore grade. And historically, that benchmark has been at, say, 60, 70% of the, uh, the discount has been 60, 70% of the benchmark. And it's suddenly changed to being sort of 20 or 30%. So all of a sudden, the iron ore that Fortescue mined had halved in price compared to the high grade stuff. And the market thought this was going to be permanent. My own view was, yep, it might be permanent, but it might not. And it's being priced, Fortescue is being priced as if this is a permanent change in its operations. And in fact, the outcome is highly variable. So again, it took that, that gamble that the market had priced the story into a stock and the story wasn't completely written then. There wasn't a certainty about it. And that's the way I, I like to behave. You know, I, mean, I don't know the future. I don't try and divine the future. What I try and do is take bets, calculated bets. And what you want to do is find a situation where if you're right, you make a lot of money. And if you're wrong, you don't lose a lot of money. And the best heuristic I've found is just comparing narratives. What's priced in, what's possible. And taking calculated bets can be quite difficult for new investors. You've got a few decades of hindsight to look back on. So I was wondering if you could share, are there any warning signs or red flags if someone listening has been researching a company that would stand out and say, stay away from this company if they have some of these features? Yeah, the um, the biggest red flag really is a promotional management team that follows the latest trend. And we've seen this all before. I've seen seafood companies become gold miners. I've seen gold miners become uranium miners. And I've seen uranium miners become lithium miners. <laughs> and it's a huge red flag. I think the red flag at the moment is, well, the new, the thing that everyone is chasing is AI. I'd be very, very careful about companies throwing around AI in their presentations and in their talks. They're trying to build AI into their narrative because that's what drives a share price. There are already so many businesses that have been around for years who are now sprinkling AI and other buzzwords into their talks and into their presentations. And that is exactly the kind of thing that one should avoid because that's the business trying to tell a, a story. And that story is one that just happens to be particularly po- um, powerful at the moment, but it's not an enduring quality at all. The other thing I think is understanding company accounts is is quite important. And when you do have, when you're comfortable with company accounts, you can see which companies are aggressive with their accounting assumptions and which ones are conservative. And it can only be a small thing, but it tells you about a choice a company has made and it tells you about the culture and the thinking about the management as well. Management has decided to take an aggressive approach. They've made a choice to be aggressive with the accounting assumptions. And that tells you something about them. So those two things um, I'm always looking for are buzzwords featured throughout the company and aggressive accounting assumptions. Uh, Gaurav, one of the challenging parts of value investing is that sometimes you can invest in a company and it goes down for quite a long time. And just psychologically, it's very difficult to hold on, even if you do believe in the story and you've done the research. What are some strategies that you use to invest long-term in in companies, even if they're not following maybe the path you'd hope? Yeah, you've just highlighted, Kate, probably the hardest thing about investing, and that is to know when to utilize your patience and when you should be impatient. Because if you're buying something that's out of favor, 
or if you're buying something that's cheap, it's because it's out of favor. And just because you buy it, it doesn't stop you, stop the stock from being out of favor. It's not going to stop stock from falling. So we need to we need to build fortitude against um, just looking at the share price. And, and that's really a personal skill. I think over time, I've become very good at, at allowing a share price to fall a long way and not getting concerned about it. And I guess having conviction in your idea um, helps do that. But there are also times when you've got to acknowledge that your view is wrong. And I think stubbornly holding onto a stock when the market is telling you you're wrong is also a mistake. And so the trick is to be selective with your patience. Patience is not a virtue in investing. One should not allocate it endlessly or generously. You need to be very selective with the ideas that you show patience for. I'm very, very quick now to sell out of a position completely if something changes. And the trick is you need to identify those triggers beforehand. And I'll give you an example in Magellan, one of the stocks I've lost big amounts of money in and in hindsight was a huge loser for members, for myself, and for the fund. I always said Magellan is probably trying to diversify out of being just a fund manager and being a broader financial institution. And fund management will only be a part of that. And they're doing other things, launching other income products and doing other things as well, infrastructure products and other things like that. And the driving force behind that was the uh, was the founder and chief investment officer, Hamish Douglas. So you know, I, I had been ridden the price down a long way already. I think it had fallen sort of 40%. And it did not worry me really at all. But what happened after that was that the strategy of the business abruptly changed. Hamish Douglas uh, left abruptly. And instead of chasing these other avenues for growth, they sold all their um, other businesses off and focused on just on being a fund manager. So right there, two of my investing planks, the founder is really important to this business. He's a driving force. And this is more than just a fund manager. This is a diversified financial giant in the making. Those two planks were suddenly removed. And I was comfortable, instead of being comfortable wearing a 40% loss, I sold out within a day, even though the price had fallen even further, even though the valuation looked cheaper than it ever had. I think it was on a single digit P multiple. The worst thing to do is look at the price, look at the strategy and say, yes, something has changed. My thesis is broken, but, but the price is better, but everyone knows it. I think that's a mistake. Um, once your thesis is broken, once your assumptions behind your buy have been, have fallen away, you need to sell and exit and be merciless with that choice. And, um, and otherwise, if a business is, is traveling okay and the reasons you bought the stock are still intact, then I think one should be able to ride out the ups and downs of share prices. You mentioned two really important points. I think my worst investments and what I've like advocated for publicly, the worst investments that I've ever had are definitely the ones where they fall and then I do a valuation and I say, it looks cheap now. It looks cheap now. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, And because it changes the reason I own it. But I think what you talk about is this idea of like you do the work before you buy the thing, whereas a lot of people kind of make it up as they go. And if you truly, truly do the work before you go, you, you said planks, like the reasons for owning the business. If those are broken or they shift, then you know, you know basically what, you have made a mistake like in your own process, in your own thinking. So I think that's a really important thing. And it's like front loading the effort, whereas a lot of people don't do that. They think about it once they've bought it. 
Yeah, you can't do that because a whole lot of psychological biases and emotions take over. No one likes to admit they were wrong. No one wants to take the loss. And it's really hard to make that difficult choice to chop. So we've actually got a rule at Intelligent Investor. It's called the broken thesis rule. If your investment case is broken, it's an automatic sell, an automatic sell. And then you can come back and look at it after you've sold it and see if there's a case for buying it again. But we've taken that from a US head fund manager, David Einhorn. He's got a, a broken thesis sell, a sell test, a rule as well. We've nicked that from him. And it's been a really important plank in, in um, getting out of stocks that aren't working quickly and not hanging on. I think in the old days, we used to endure a lot of pain and, and value investors love pain. They love to sit there and be wrong for a long time before looking right. There's a lot of emotional baggage that comes with a value investor because you want to be different, you want to be differentiated and that involves sitting there wearing it, you know, uh, flogging yourself and, and being proud about the scars. We don't do any of that. <laughs> I think if, if, a, if thesis is broken, you, you sell and you exit immediately. Yeah. The discipline to do that is so hard though. <laughs> because it's an automatic uh, decision, mm. it just removes any emotional baggage from it because you, no one wants to do that. I can tell you we've had plenty of arguments and the analyst always wants to hold on, always. And because it's an automatic rule, they have no choice. Mm, that's really good. So obviously people can join the Intelligent Investor as free trial and read and learn from people like yourself and Nathan you know, John, so many great people that write for you guys and do brilliant analysis on companies. But can you recommend or suggest for newer investors in particular, Gaurav, resources that they might look to? Maybe if you imagine someone who is familiar with ETFs but kind of wants to go on this journey or they're even, maybe they're not sure, but they want to consider it as part of their long-term strategy. Like what would they turn to? Yeah, I first want to say there's absolutely nothing wrong with ETFs. If you're the kind of investor who just wants to get along with their day job and doesn't want to put in the emotional effort or the intellectual effort, that's fine. Go play golf, go do something else and, and put in an ETF. And I think there should be no shame and nothing wrong with that because investing directly is intense and it's demanding. But if you're ready to do that, then... Um, you're lucky because there are so many good investment books. And I would start with general wide books that teach you how to think rather than very specific detailed financial books. A lot of people say, read The Intelligent Investor. And I would say, do not read The Intelligent Investor. We're talking about the book here, not the website. <laughs> yeah, everyone should read The Intelligent Investor, the product. But the book, The Intelligent Investor, which is Buffett's favorite investing book, I think that's a really bad place to start because it's technical and it's dry. And um, it tells you too many specifics without being broad. I would recommend actually, um, there's a biography of Warren Buffett called um, The Making of an American Capitalist. It's a biography, but in that biography is captured all the wisdom and all the experience of Warren Buffett in an easy to digest way. You get to understand how the greatest investor in the world has, has thought about his investing over decades. And I think it's a great start. My favorite personal investor is a bloke called um, Howard Marks, who runs a, a huge um, fund called Oaktree. Um, he's written a book called The Most Important Thing. And it's a very slim book. It's probably 120 pages or so. It will take you an afternoon to get through. But I think that best captures how to think as an investor. And his running gag in that book is that um, everyone asks him what the most important thing and every chapter is the most important thing. And then and then the quality that you need. Um, so there's numerous most important things, but I think that's wonderful. 
The other one I'll throw out there is a book called um, How to Be a Stock Market Genius, or You Can Be a Stock Market Genius, I think it's called, by Joel Greenback. Terrible title. He admits it freely, but that's a great, it's a bit more in-depth and I think a, a bit more hardcore, but still very easy to read with simple examples. And it goes through how one of the great investors in uh, modern times has gone about his business. I don't think we should read those things in order to replicate what these people have done, but it shows a common thought process that I think we can all learn from. Absolutely. I think those books are, are a brilliant selection. I reread The Making of American Capitalist earlier this year. I think reading it the second time, I was thinking to myself, oh, there's so many things I missed, but some of the really important things are just an insight into how Buffett started so young. It was so simple how he just saw value that could be created with like used pinball machines, for example, and how that then translated from saving ferociously to investing ferociously. It's just it's a, it's a great book and easy to read. And there's so many books written about Buffett. And so that's probably one of the easier ones to wrap your head around the complete story of him. And there's no reason to go chasing complexity. I think um, as a general rule, one should stick to simplicity. And that goes for the reading list as well. <laughs> Gaurav, was there anything else about value investing you wanted to chat about today? I really want to convey how much of a um, behavioral discipline value investing is. And it's not really a numbers game or an application of math or finance. And I think a lot that's where a lot of people get that wrong. And consequently, they focus on probably the wrong things to get better as investors. You know, to get better as an investor, I think you really need to understand, control, and regulate your own psychology and your own emotions, not really spend too much time on those mechanics of investing, which I actually think, uh, for most people, um, a short amount of time spent on them is all you need. You don't really need to go into depth. What you really need to do is get better at making hard decisions and understand that value investing works because it's so hard to master. If it was easy, then everyone would be doing it and it would stop to work. So you know, expect it to be to be difficult and there'll be periods where it's not fun and you're not making money and that's all part of the game. I know we've spoken so much recently over the last few weeks, Karab, but if you're interested, we had a conversation off air the other day with someone about how like a company called like La Visa, which many people will know, like Westfield Shopping Centers, and people would walk past that and think either it's dead or it's thriving and then we talked about all different types of businesses that do different things. And opportunity kind of hides in unusual places, I think, and it can hide in disagreement. And finding someone who can articulate the message so clearly is just a wonderful resource. So I would direct anyone listening to this who is even remotely interested in the art of value investing, in how to think more like a value investor and to identify these opportunities and have conviction to do it, to grab a free trial of the Intelligent Investor and read some of Gaurav's work and the team's work. And uh, there'll be full links available in the show notes. So we really do appreciate you taking some time out of your week. I know you've got a lot of things on this Wednesday, including uh, something to do with the family. So yeah, we just really appreciate your time. Yeah, it's uh, Shakespeare Festival at my kid's school and uh, <laughs> I'm involved. And so, yeah, we're doing a Shakespeare performance um, tonight, in fact, which has been dominating my life more than investing has in the last few days. <laughs> yeah. I didn't want to say it, but I'm glad you did. But I, <laughs> I, I really appreciate that, mate. And um, Kate, as always, it's a pleasure. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks, Kate. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast. We hope you learned something new and were able to take one thing away from this episode. If you're keen to learn more, head on over to Rask Education and take one of our free money and investing courses. You could even become a Rask Core member for less than your Netflix subscription each month. And don't forget to subscribe for new episodes in your inbox every week. Plus, if you enjoyed the show, we'd love you to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and send any questions our way via the link in the description. And before we go on, did this podcast contain personal financial advice just for me? Absolutely not, Kate. Our podcast actually contains general financial information only. What that means is the information does not take into account your financial needs, goals, objectives, or even your situation. So because of that, it's important that you consider if the information is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on it. If that all sounds a bit confusing or you're still working out what your needs are, it's a great idea to consult a licensed and trusted financial planner. And don't forget to do your own research. Are you thinking about starting your wealth creating journey, but not sure where to put your hard earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.